Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In 1814, representatives of the Grand Coalition that had defeated Napoleon gathered in Vienna. There, interrupted only by Napoleon's 100 days after his return from exile in Elba, they developed a new order for Europe and for the world that connected peace to multilateralism, diplomacy, philanthropy, and rights. These ideas, writes Glenda Sluga, came not only from male aristocrats and diplomats, but from female aristocrats and bourgeois men and women who imagined a new kind of European politics. Glenda Sluga is professor of international history and capitalism at the European University Institute in Florence, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick Laureate Fellow and professor of international history at the University of Sydney. Her most recent book is The Invention of International Order, Remaking Europe After Napoleon, and it is the subject of our conversation today. Glenda Sluga, welcome to Historically Thinking. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So um, the Congress gathers in 1814 in Vienna. What had led to this point? Could you give us a brief explanation of the sort of Sixth Coalition and the war for the Sixth Coalition, since that seems to be, that's the groundwork for what will eventually become the Congress of Vienna? Right. So um, in 1812, Napoleon made that fateful decision to uh, invade Russia. And uh, it was that particular event that led to the Tsar of Russia deciding it was time to try another coalition and to defeat Napoleon. And the story of how that coalition comes together is really the beginnings of the history of modern diplomacy that we associate with the Congress of Vienna and the period of peacemaking that brings the war to the end. Because first of all, Napoleon has to be defeated. And of course, there's a longer history behind that. It's not just Napoleon invades Russia, but there's been quarter of a century of upheaval on the continent. Napoleon, uh, as the inheritor of the French Revolution, has set up uh, economic blockades, uh, the continental system, as it's called. So Britain doesn't have access to the European market. In fact, one of the interesting things about the war, the final war and the peace, is that suddenly British um, people are back on the continent and the Europeans are looking at them and thinking, wow, they dress so weird. <laughs> so there's just been this you know, quarter of a century of alienation. So the return of the... Of the um, the British and in, in the context of joining the coalition and subsidising the European armies, some of the uh, British statesmen, including, of course, Castlereagh, who's the famous 
British foreign minister at the time and a, an important figure in this history are turning up and everybody's looking at them and saying, wow, they're really out of fashion. Um, so but the war, the, the war against this final war, there have been six coalitions, as, as the name suggests, and um, this final war then, of course, leads to the defeat of Napoleon and the, the long-ish history of Congress peacemaking that follows because it's not just the Congress of Vienna, the famous one with the balls and uh, the sociability, uh, but the uh, before then there are smaller sort of conferences where the the diplomats and statesmen and, and the Tsar himself, you know, are honing their relationships with each other as a coalition and learning how to relate to each other as a coalition and how to share uh, their objectives. And then afterwards um, there's the Congress of Paris, uh, there's a the Congress of Vienna, there's the Congress of uh, Aix-la-Chapelle. These congresses go on till 1822, each time trying to, you know, uh, hit another nail into the uh, you know, foundations or the building of peace in Europe and the idea that there would be, in fact, a long peace, uh, perhaps even a permanent peace because people were tired of war. So, so the Tsar, Alexander, makes the decision after they've pushed Napoleon back across the border that there's been too much of this. I mean, he makes a fateful decision that they will continue to pursue Napoleon to the ends, to pair back all the way back to Paris. He didn't have to do that, but he decides to finally, that, that's the creation of the Sixth Coalition. Am, am I right about that? That's right. I mean, it's not just him, and the decision isn't made really uh, at the outset. They begin, you know, to repel um, Napoleon, and there's a, um, a coalition first with Sweden. So the coalition members are added on gradually, they have to be convinced, mm -hmm. right? And then the head of Sweden right. at the time is a prince regent who's French. It's a, it's, um, yeah, right. a man, uh, Jean-Baptiste, a former military man in the French army who had been sent by Napoleon to sort of quell the Swedish. And when he gets there, he ends up being adopted by the king and made into the prince regent and suddenly realises, you know, well, actually this is quite nice, and uh, turns into yeah. a, um, you know, <laughs> a proper, eventually, a proper Swedish king. But, of course, he, you know, there could have been an alliance. Uh, they mar they're married into this, uh, well, he's married into the family of um, a, a former uh, uh, lover of Napoleon's. Anyway, and so the, the decisions aren't made straight out. And the important thing about this process too and why the book starts in 1812 is that those decisions, how they come about, is really the story of the role of a woman, Germaine de Staël. And she has fled Napoleon. She's gone all the way around um, to Sweden via Russia because she's looking for somewhere to be with her children who are also being persecuted by Napoleon and her friends. And she had been married to a Swedish ambassador. And in order to get to Sweden, she'd gone via Russia. And she just turned up at the right time. She knew Bernadotte. Um, the Tsar knew her knew about her. She was very famous. And she became the linchpin of this decision-making. She kept convincing the Tsar that he had to lead the coalition. She kept convincing Bernadotte that the Tsar was someone he should trust. And she tried to convince both of them that the point of the war should be not just um, Napoleon's overthrow, but the adoption of a more liberal uh, agenda for politics in Europe in the post-war. And so she's fascinating. And she does this through salons, through her writing of letters, through her publications, 
um, and these networks that she builds. And so slowly the coalition grows and the British come on board, the Prussians come on board. Finally, uh, the Austrians, they're a bit slower because Metternich, who's the foreign minister for Austria, is really uh, against war. He doesn't like wars. He finds them, you know, a waste of human life and effort. And he's worked very hard to build a relationship with Napoleon by arranging a marriage. Napoleon's second wife is an Austrian princess. And so he thinks, well, let's just keep trying to sort some out, some arrangement. We don't want to overthrow Napoleon. And so he has to be convinced. And the person who convinces him is another woman. And that's part of the story too. So putting these women back into the story shows that uh, the history that starts in 1812 and leads to the Congresses is one where women are part of the politics. They're part of um, the kind of informal diplomacy that takes place and is and, it, and is a normative part of the of the you know, international politics of the period. So, if if I understand the one of the arguments of the book correctly, this is about an inflection point in even diplomatic practice, and so that there's, there's a there's a there are changes going on in the practice and the the self conception of diplomacy. So you you write of the cosmopolitan brotherhood of ancien regime diplomacy, which is literally <laughs> because it's aristocrats who can afford to be ambassadors and foreign ministers and 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 sort of pay for them pay themselves to show off their country uh, to others. You have to be rich, uh, and then because they're aristocrats of the high and because the higher blooded aristocrats are more welcome throughout Europe, they're often related to each other. So could you explain that background and the importance also of of, of salon culture, if we will, and, 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 of, and of women in this? So the interesting thing about this period is both that, you know, women are there in ways that are fairly conventional, uh, exceptional women, okay? But at the same time, these changes are occurring and the changes that if you were writing national history of the period, you'd notice that states are developing bureaucracies, that they're bringing in, um, you know, uh, public servants and, and, and uh, but, you know, the French state is a good example of this and the Prussian, for example, but also the British. And they're, they're really honing a more, um, the kinds of bureaucracies we associate with modern life. So in that same context, these sorts of ideas are being brought to um, diplomacy and how one organises it uh, through foreign offices, for example. In the actual context of the building of the coalition, as the armies of these different um, empires and states, you know, move towards France and have more and more meetings, they realise that uh, they need to think about ways of um, cultivating better relationships amongst themselves so they can trust each other. And they start to have, uh, you know, sort of informal conferences, if you like, amongst themselves along the way in these at these military sites the famous one is in Chaumont in um, northern France. They've crossed the border. By that time, they've made the decision. They're going all the way to Paris. And uh, there, you know, it's so interesting. They talk about, you know, how do you chair a meeting? And so the British say, well, you've got to, you know, make sure everybody has the same information. So let's, you know, copy lots of um, minutes and uh, information from, from the meetings that we hold and make sure that every day everybody's up to date. And then we can talk on the basis of shared information. And at the same time, they start to develop other sorts of methods to remove distrust from amongst themselves as, as allies. And they include 
methods that then get incorporated into diplomatic practice and legal convention into the modern era, including, right, uh, how do you um, uh, get uh, credited when you arrive somewhere uh, in a court? Well, before it used to be if you're the most powerful, then you had precedence. And then they changed it and they said, well, actually, let's make it on who gets there first. doesn't matter if they're a small or a big power. And also when we sign documents, let's just do it alphabetically. And we'll do it on the basis of a French alphabet because French was a shared diplomatic language. And so these were all efforts to remove passions from uh, negotiation, even amongst themselves. So not even talking about negotiating with Napoleon, they had to build uh, good relations amongst themselves. And these practices in, uh, became part of this new modern way of thinking about um, politics uh, in this space between states. And it reflected and mirrored the kinds of you know, ideas that were being developed in the context of, of the states themselves. So what is what is lost or what's rather maybe even more importantly for a historian, what's been then forgotten about what came before that? Because that right. all sounds, oh, wait, that was cr- that was created? We didn't know that was created. We thought that was just, that was the way it always was. And then, of course, that, that forgetfulness then covers over people like Madame de Stael. Exactly, right? And so, you know, your first point is, is so right. So this new way of doing diplomacy and at the foundation of this, the invention of international order in this period, it has to be invented, right? And I think that's such an important lesson for now um, because we forget that these are practices that have to be invented and worked at. Now, your other point, though, is, is as salient, and that is that it then ends up, the fact that these practices are developed and part of um, the ways in which bureaucracies and states develop in the modern era, you know, Inevitably, because of these practices, it's men that then become definitive actors in this realm. And the women that were there prior, because of their exceptional capacities or their aristocratic networks, are suddenly uh, illegitimate in these spaces. It's not that they don't try to do it anymore, and part of the history I tell is how they do try to maintain a role and a voice, and even, you know, they're, they're... papers, someone like Dorothea Lievin, who's a Baltic ambassadrice, the wife of an ambassador, it's clear that she really aspires to be a diplomat. She writes it in her notes. She uh, tries to buy, she she rents the apartment that the French foreign minister used to own in Paris when she's there because he was a diplomat, famous diplomat, and she kind of ensconces herself. So women keep trying to be part of this story. But the Official practices become associated with men and masculinity of particular kinds. And also then the history of it uh, assumes that women don't have a place in this history. So they're just left out and ignored. And not just ignored, but actually actively written out. There's a famous uh, study from the early uh, 20th century by a British diplomat called Harold Nicholson, who was involved in you know, the, the peacemaking in 1919, he, he wrote a, kept a diary for that. And so he's very well known and part of a kind of Bloomsbury set in England. And he wrote uh, in his uh, history of diplomacy, you know, the one thing he said that diplomacy isn't, it's not salons and women. And yet when we go back to the uh, early 19th century and the 18th century, it's clear from diplomatic guy, uh, you know, manuals that um, it was understood that the core of diplomacy was conversation 
negotiation requires conversation. And that the people who were best at this were, in fact, the saloniers, the women who ran the salons. They knew how to get people together and how to talk. And Germaine de Stel, in her uh, witness history of this period, which becomes the first real history of the French Revolution, in fact, uh, she talks a lot about the salon and its importance. And she talks about her own salon and how she tried to run it. And, and and how important she thought that these negotiations and conversations were. And then she also talked about how Napoleon actively tried to turn it into an, a masculine-only kind of space and that he devised these male versions um, in order to keep women out of, of that um, political negotiation process, make sure they didn't have a role, a, a formal role. So we can see these changes taking place as part of the modernisation of um of national and international politics in this in, through the 19th century and starting from this period. Yeah, as I read your book, I thought of watching my mother as a child remove wallpaper. Uh, <laughs> and if you, uh, if you remove wallpaper aggressively, you go right down to the plaster and you say, you see, the wallpaper was just always over plaster. But if you then remove it carefully, you can see there might be three sheets of previous wallpapers. And so often that's historical memory. We put, we cover over the other wallpapers and, depending on the aggressiveness of recovery, we can either take down the plaster and say it was plaster all the time, or we find out that there are lots of other different patterns of wallpaper. I mean, it's um, not, it wasn't, I, I don't want to oh, sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say it's not all plain sailing, even in the early 19th century for women like de Stael uh, and Lieven. There's a lot of suspicion already, or always of women, right? So the gender order is there. Uh, the meaning that's attributed to it and the kind of uh, space women have to negotiate representations of their difference is what changes, right? And so um, even to style, by the time she's writing her witness history, she writes out of it her important role, even though her contemporaries acknowledge it and there's lots of evidence of how different um, uh, uh, um, commentators are viewing her the import, her importance. She writes herself out, and she, during her um, her experiences, she also often tells her uh, collaborators to burn her letters. That's partly to protect her children and herself from any kind of, um, you know, uh, from criticism and attacks uh, from the other political side, for example, but also because she is a woman. And then she becomes an easy target for um, uh, political opposition that wants to remove her and, and disapproves of her influence in that kind of way. But it's also clear that it's a process, right? So uh, I have, through the letters of um, another woman, the woman who convinces Mechnik uh, to... Uh, to drop his neutrality stance and to uh, bring Austria into the coalition, the Duchess of Sagan, it's clear from their exchanges that he is very adamant that she does not do politics. And he says, you know, my last girlfriend did politics and I got rid of her. And she then has to negotiate this in her um, relationship with him, how to be political and not be political. And so there's a lot of disavowal of politics by women. I don't do politics, you know, I'm doing something else because it becomes increasingly 
difficult in the context where politics is being done more and more, right? And that's the really interesting thing yeah. about this period, the extent of politics, of politicking in this space between states, not just within states, but actually in the space between states that we think of as international and international politics. Can I, I one thing, before I get to, well, part of it, get to Wilhelmina, Duchess of Sagan uh, mm-hmm. and Metternich, uh, but it's very interesting to me, uh, looking at these diplomats, how many of them come from the peripheries of their respective kingdoms? So look, Castlereagh, he's Anglo-Irish, mm-hmm. you know, periphery. Um, Madame de Stael, of course, very important connections. Her father is a Fr- former French finance minister who's Swiss. I think German Swiss, too, or French mm-hmm. Fra- Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, then we've got Dorothea Le- Levin and the Duchess of Sagan. Uh, so they're connected to the Russian court, but they're Baltic Germans. Yeah. It's very interesting. You see the importance of Baltic Germans throughout, like this, uh, the the diplomat diplomacy of the period, because they have st- they have feet in two worlds. Uh, all these people have feet in two worlds, in at least two worlds, and then they marry. At least. You know, <laughs> De Stael is, you know, Genevan and you know Parisian. She, you know, she thinks of Paris as really her home, and she's also, you know, married into the Swedish. Um, context right. because of her arranged marriage. Nobody can understand why she married mm-hmm. um, the Baron de Stahl because he was a rather pathetic man. Um, but they, the assumption is because of the ennoblement that went with it. But, um, so, you know, everybody has, because it's an ancien world, I mean, that's where that phrase cosmopolitan brotherhood probably applies to many of these people. Uh, even the style mm-hmm. has bourgeois origins in some ways, but but her ennoblement also draws her into a broader world as well as the connections of her parents because they lived in the French court because of the role of Jacques Necker. Um, so, and cosmopolitan brotherhood isn't my own phrase. That's a, one I've taken from another historian. Yeah. But I think it fits very well. And, in fact, one of the ways in which historians have written about this period is thinking about it as the shift from a cosmopolitan past to a national future. But my own view is that it's a bit more complicated than that because there's also this international in the space and there's empires and and the national isn't quite um, the idea of nation that we have much later in the 19th century quite yet developed in that way in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about Wilhelmina, Duchess of Sagan, who I strongly suspect some of my ancestors were her, were her serfs or serfs to her family. So she's... Um, uh, she's fascinating, and uh, I dislike her intensely uh, after encountering her, th- thanks to you. But so, could you describe her because uh, uh, in, in her complexity? Yeah, she's so interesting, isn't she? Because she's an example of um, a woman who has an extraordinary education, so she, and she's a bibliophile. She's constantly trying to get books uh, to build her library. Uh, she inherits because she belongs to this other ancient world. She's actually able to inherit. Um, property from her father and becomes um, the ma- sort of the, the the richest person in the family and has uh, owns the the land and passes it down to her next sister when she dies. Um, uh, but the land the, the family move because the Russians are uh, decides he wants the Duchy of Courland. They end up moving um, finding land down in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, well the Austrian Empire at that time in the Habsburg Empire in um, Bohemia, and um, but. So she's very well read. She's extremely educated. She's really interested in political affairs. And as the person, you know, in charge of the of um, of, of her own territory, she's also uh, the person who organises 
an army to, to repel French forces when they try to uh, attack her territory. And it has to be said that uh, she's a conservative. She doesn't just like dislike Napoleon because um, he is an expansionist. She just likes him because she thinks he represents the French Revolution and liberal ideas. So she's the opposite of mm. the style, even though they know each other because um, everybody moves in, in similar circles. But uh, sh- so her ambition is to get rid of Napoleon as a way of uh, returning to an older order, actually. And uh, she, she yeah. finds some sympathy for her ideas uh, in uh, her relationship with Metternich, the Austrian foreign minister, who's also married. I mean, he's got his own wife. Um, but uh, and, and she has, Sagan, like um, m- many of these women, they're extraordinary. It's a bit like the style. They end up supporting lots of men who are hopeless, who can't, you know, <laughs> fend for themselves. And as they, they have relationships with, with them and then in order to get rid of them, they have to pay them off. And um, they also end up, you know, adopting children or Estelle has her own children, Sagan adopts um, and as a way of having a family. And fascinating from the period, but very independent and interesting because, you know, because contrary to all their assumptions about <laughs> women and and uh, their dependence on men, it was the opposite. Poor old Estelle, she was very good at managing money. She'd learned a lot about money from her father. And uh, so she was quite wealthy. And uh, she just had to deal with all these hopeless men, including you know, the famous French philosopher um, Benjamin Constant, who was constantly getting money out of her and uh, was the father of her, um, at least one of her children, uh, but refused to ever do anything for his daughter. Uh, uh, he was pretty self-obsessed and narcissistic. What, um, how, how does, uh, first of all, how does the Duchess of Sagan, I guess she and Metternich uh, come into each other's orbits because of, of, of they're their, both at court. Uh, but then what's her influence on Metternich? Because it's, because what, what, what I'm seeing, what, what you, you've already quoted Metternich as saying, hey, don't be political. And I don't like a mistress uh, who's political. But at the same time, he needs her to be political while telling her not to be political. His, his ideas are transitioning as well as hers. If, you, right. if it, it feels like to me. Yeah. So he's interesting because, you know, he is very well, for people who know the word Mitnick or the name, you know, they would assume he's an arch conservative. And he is in some ways, I suppose, but he's interesting because this, you can't, these people aren't black and white. They're very nuanced. He's very modern in many of his ways. He's constantly, you know, advising Sagan to stop being a hypochondriac and sort of, you know, uh, he, he, she keeps trying hypnotists and mesmerists and ways of getting rid of her ailments. And he says, look, you know, I think it's, you know, you've got your migraines because you worry a lot, you know. Maybe you should just, like, think about what you're doing and what you think. And he actually thinks of letters as ways of, you know, talking about yourself. I see him as almost proto-Freudian, actually. Uh, he's interested in vaccines. <laughs> he's the guy that gets vaccines to the Persians and um, who are very grateful to him. Uh, uh, and he, so he's so interested in science. He also is taught by uh, professors who are taught by Kant. And so his view of of international society, if we want to call it that, uh, is very much a view that would kind of echo into the late um, 19th and into the 20th centuries, that one needs to respect the sovereignty of other states in order to create a society of states. Otherwise, you know, you end up threatening your own state if you start challenging other people's sovereignty, 
then it starts to unravel the kind of the, the international yeah, order. I, I, reading a recent biography of him, at least in his views of England uh, and his views of English politics, when he's there, he almost sounds like a proto-Manchester liberal. Right. Um, in a way that Sagan just like couldn't. I mean, she would she would she would as soon execute a Manchester liberal as uh, as a Jacobin, you know. Yeah, exactly. but, but Metternich right. is so she's much more conservative than Met- him. But he doesn't. So yeah. so it is interesting, as you say, that he is always advising her to not be political. He does say to her the one thing he thinks is good for her to do is is what he calls the politics of bandaging. Which we would call, right. uh, you know, humanitarian politics, if you like, or just humanitarianism, and she becomes important during the the latter stages of the war in setting up hos- hospitals in Prague uh, to deal with wounded soldiers coming from, you know, the the um, the, ma- the main battles battlefields because Metternich himself isn't bothering to do anything about it, so she does that. And he says, oh, well, that's fine, that's good, you should do that as a woman, but you shouldn't do other things, don't meddle too much. I mean, later in his, he becomes also a confidant in, of um, Dorothea Lievin, but I think he's not in love with her, so he doesn't care about her doing politics and he's using her to find out about the Russians because she's the wife of the Russian ambassador and very well connected in England and mm-hmm. elsewhere. But with Sagan, I actually think he's deeply in love with her but he also, um, or entranced by her at least, uh, and he just doesn't want her, he, he wants to be the, the person doing politics in that sphere because he's also, you know, finding a version of himself in this coalition building and in the um, diplomacy of the post-war. He thinks it's fantastic. Suddenly all the, the representatives of the small states of Europe are coming to him at various places as the armies move through um, Europe and saying, well, you know, we'll, it, well, if you win, can we have this? You know, we want this. Make sure you do this. And he just thinks it's fantastic. He's really powerful. Um, so I think that's the specific context too of his relationship with her and why he tells her not to do politics. But in that too, he's yeah. modern, right? So he's not. It's not an old world. It's a new world. He's outlining where women don't do politics and the spheres are separate. And it's very much, of course. A, a, an idea of political and social order that comes out of Britain at this period and is associated with the bourgeois political model of the British. Even de Staal talks about that in, in an admiring way, actually, sometimes, she says uh, in her work in the novel Corinne that she writes. She thinks both that it stifles women but also that maybe that's the only way you stop rivalry between men and women. You have some kind of order so men can concentrate on, you know, being good um political citizens and doing their duty, if you like. So very complicated. They're all nuanced and complex. What should we say about individuals in the past? <laughs> exactly. Um, so one of the things that they're, uh, as well as thinking about the politics of bandages, they're thinking about what is Europe, um, right. which after all is is a recent coinage. I, I forget, John Hale once, in, I think Civilization of the Renaissance, he explains that Europe was like 1490s, 1480s. Anyway, it's it's a relatively recent term, even in 1815. So they once again have to reconceptualize. Yes, they have to once again reconceptualize what Europe is. So how does the Congress of Vienna attempt, attempt to solve that problem, invent Europe? So that's right. So, you know, what does Europe stand for? And again, this is why... 
uh, and we'll get to it, but, you know, why there are so many echoes and resonances for me between what happened, this particular historical moment, then, you know, the end of the First World War, end of the Second World War, now, you know, end of the Cold War. These are all moments that you can see that these larger questions are not just relevant, but, you know, poignantly relevant. And that the, the, the international order, the European order, is constantly being reinvented because of the imperatives and the the circumstances of the historical moment. Now, in this, in the, in the uh, period after the Napoleonic Wars, 1814, you know, you've had the French Revolution, you've had Napoleon, and then you start to fight, thank, thanks to uh, de Staal, largely, you start this coalition and this fight against Napoleon, not on the grounds that you're anti-revolutionary, not at all, but actually that you are going to represent popular will in a better way, that you are going to be better at fulfilling many of the promises of the French Revolution, uh, including, you know, the French have given Jews rights in the areas that they've, you know, taken over in, in Europe. Um, and so they don't get rid of Jewish rights. They're, they're renegotiated for those previously occupied areas. Not Nobody is arguing about rights in France um, or in um, Austria or, but in the areas, like in the parts of what had been the Holy Roman Empire and been reconstituted by the French as as part of a kind of German confederation and uh, in other areas, all sorts of rights were given to Jews, but also, you know, a civil code was promulgated that had specific uh, roles for men and women and, and laws about uh, uh, um, paternity and 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 uh, legal, you know, property ownership, etc. So all these things that had changed they weren't going to be undone. But the question was, what, what did you keep, right? And also, so what kind of Europe, what kind of values, constitutions, what do you do with those? It's very much about, yeah, maybe we should have constitutions for places. And also, where are the limits of Europe? Because the leader of this coalition and the man regarded as, you know, the le leader of a liberal Europe is the Tsar, the Russian Tsar. And there are Cossack armies in Paris, right, that have liberated the French from their um, oppressor as well as uh, the rest of Europe. So where are the boundaries of this Europe? Now, Russia is a real issue for them. And even de Staal, who is, you know, so close to the Tsar and writes a memoir of this period where she talks about Russia as being this extraordinary place, it's just lacking a bourgeoisie, she says. And it's, you know, if it had one, it will change, and the Tsar is going to bring change, and he's liberal, et cetera. <laughs> so... You know, it's about having a story to tell about Russia as well. What about the empire regarded as the seventh empire of Europe, the Ottoman Empire? So, you know, Napoleon had expanded into the Ottoman Empire. So the, the question about the Ottoman Empire is also relevant at this point. And there are um, Christians who are coming from that empire, Serbians and uh, Greeks, who are saying that they need to be liberated. Uh, as well. But, uh, you know, the, all of these European empires have very good trading relations with the Ottoman Empire. So there are economic issues to be resolved too. The Ottoman Empire doesn't come. Metternich assumes it will come, that it will, be, it will be part of the Congress. But in fact, they don't come, partly because they're wary of being drawn in to a, uh, a you know, process of negotiation where they actually may not want to accept the authority of the people running it. So they watch, they send representatives, but it's only later in the 1850s that they become formal parts of this idea of uh, congressing 
but not of Europe. In fact, it's very clear by 1815 that the Ottoman Empire is not just outside of Europe, but Europe dictates uh, the sovereignty in terms of the Ottoman Empire's uh, political uh, capacity outside of its borders, but also within amongst its Christian minorities. So you've got this process of what I call civilizational ordering taking place, gender ordering, there's class ordering going on, and there's this civilizational ordering in the invention of international order. Now, if people know about the Congress, they've already picked up on some of the elements of it, which is sexual intrigue and lots mm. of dancing. The Congress, mm. da- the Congress dances, yeah. um, and of course, that sells a certain narrative of the Congress, which you are busily you you undermine throughout the book. Um, so, what's that narrative, and what's wrong with it, other than just being sort of like as fluffy as uh, schlagobers in a on, a, on yeah. coffee in Vienna? I mean, it's just, <laughs> just whipped cream yeah. and fluff. Yeah. Look, I think it's look. It's not that people weren't dancing, and by the time you get to they were, the, they were certainly having sex. We know they're that they're having sex and they're <sighs> dancing. I'm sure that similar things go on now. <laughs> but um, you know, uh, the problem uh, of the narrative, and it's one that I have to say, it was it struck me when I became involved in a documentary that was being made for the. Um, <laughs> Two hundredth anniversary of the Congress of Vienna, and the woman who drew me into um, being part of this documentary was actually very interesting. And she said, "Look, I want to make a documentary that really shows what women were doing, and that they weren't just dancing, and having sex with men. They were interested in politics." I said, "Well, that's that's what I'm interested in, looking at that." And so, you know, I got involved and did a bit of a commentary. And then when I went to the launch of the documentary, I saw that in fact they'd taken. They'd got rid of her and the Austrian TV company had taken it over um, and decided that actually it was going to be much more interesting if they focused on the sex and the um, dancing. So they got these Austrian actors to reenact it. And um, whenever I give a talk, I show stills from this because I remember sitting in the audience thinking, oh, my God. How did this happen? And then, you know. Well, I, I, promise, I promise you that this podcast will not be well, – this will not – I promise you that I will not edit this down to five minutes, which will only be about. Well, we sex can't. I mean, you'd need the visuals out, but anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. So the problem is, I mean, I think the interesting thing is it re- reminds us that the private and the public are intertwined. That is true, mm-hmm. and it's true that mm-hmm. Methnik and Sagan's private relationship was the site at which these political issues, public political issues, were being sorted out. But you know, historically. It's clear that there are two stories of the Congress of Vienna. When you want to talk about politics and its uh, significance uh, as a political event, you only focus on men. And when you want to write something a bit more novelistic, you put in the women and they're dancing and having sex. But, of course, the point is that they're very, you know, A, they're engaging in politics and their writing out is a political act. The fact of not including them It's not only anachronistic, it distorts the past, it doesn't help us understand the nature of politics as it's being done at the time, it doesn't help us understand just how ambitious women are for a role in politics, and it doesn't help us understand the breadth of their influence and their ideas, you know. And for me, the fascinating thing about this period is precisely how many people are engaging this politics between states and the extent of 
you know, ambition invested in it in terms of social change and what could happen. And sometimes they're conservative and sometimes they're liberal. But the point is they think this is where politics happens. And we don't think that anymore. Mm. We think international politics is just for states and diplomats rather than for, you know, what we would call non-state actors. We do have NGOs, but, you know, it's not quite the same because when we write national histories, we talk about citizenship, um, we talk about the popular politics, but this is exactly, I think, the, the ways in which we should be thinking about that space between states because at crisis moments for the last 200 years, every time a major shift has happened in the international order, the popular engagement in this moment, in that moment, has been extraordinary. Uh, 19, the 1940s right. are classic examples. You know, even the US, which um, you know, people talk about the US influence post-45 world order, it's not just about the state, but it's actually about, you know, archives of letters, extraordinary numbers of letters in England and Britain where we do have the documentation, it's very easy to get. You know, people writing in saying, Wow, you know, if we're going to have human rights, maybe they should include all sorts of things, and maybe they should even include animal rights. You know, what kind of order are we going to have? We want, you know, we want peace. You know, how do we develop it in this period? And uh, we want rights of all kinds. Women and and colonial subjects have often turned to this space to get what they want because they can't get it within nation states or within empires through the twentieth century. So they agitate and they utilise these institutions in this fora. It's very clear through the 20th century. And I think looking more closely through the 19th is also um, a valuable historical exercise for understanding the, the extent of and importance of politics between states. Well, I mean, you alluded to this um, a little bit earlier about the, the reordering also of class. And one of the things that the Congress dancing uh, idea can also obscure is the fact that there's the bourgeois are right. advancing. You don't associate the bourgeois with ball, the ballroom. Um, you quote Henri de Saint-Simon, who says that the philosophes should make way for the second class of the commercial order. So um, who are the bourgeoisie, the, the energetic bourgeoisie, the powerful, the, 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 the powerful force of the bourgeoisie that Marx gets all you know, sweaty about, who are, are putting their volcanic energies into the Congress? Well, the most prominent would be the bankers and financiers, I suppose. And uh, they're important in two ways. One is because um, many of them are Jewish and they do actually use the forum to agitate for Jewish rights and their families are an important part of this story. So bankers uh, become um, you know, indispensable during the war to fund the war but then also to fund the peace and all sorts of state building that goes on after and they invent in the context of the reparations that were being paid, had to be paid by the French, um, uh, they, it's the bankers who come up with uh, a method by which the French can actually pay their bills and, um, you know, the occupation of France can end, etc. And this is a sovereign debt program that gets set up and becomes a transnational sovereign debt program and, and very important through the 19th and 20th centuries, still now with us. And so that all gets invented in this period by these bankers in this context. And the diplomatic context that they work in also sets up new networks for them. Um, uh, the other kinds of uh, figures are entrepreneurs that come to try and uh, promote 
for example, you know, the selling of steamships and use of steamships or new kinds of currency, all sorts of business interests turn up. Uh, we also have, I find extraordinary that we have Robert Owen. He's famous as a utopian socialist uh, and was a factory owner on the on the uh, English-Scottish border who had this sort of model factory that all these aristocrats and um, people like the Tsar knew about. The Tsar's sister had gone there to look at how he ran this factory to see if they could do the same thing in Russia. And um, it was all about, you know, having people living on site and giving them education and treating them well, etc. And Owen turns up with an introduction letter from the Rothschilds, who had become very important, the Rothschild banking family, had become sort of crucial to the British and uh, and then um, expanded, ended up paying for the whole of the Congress of Verona by 1822. They were so important. Their couriers had become important as lines of communication in the during the war and after. People relied on their couriers to send information across their uh, allied um you know, between allies, etc. And um, but Robert, Robert Owen turns up not just with this introduction, but also with um, two memorials uh, that the Times of London publishes because they're interested in them. And they're really about how you know the moment has to be um, uh, 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 sort of captured in the interest of long-term peace. And there's there was no way he said you could have long-term peace unless you dealt with really one of the new injustices that was emerging was going to get worse and worse. And that was that industrialization had meant that um, men's labor was becoming cheaper and that as a result, you know, there was this kind of inequality as uh, certain, you know, small number of individuals got richer and richer through industrialization, the working class got poorer and poorer. And that this was what was going to happen. And, and this would lead to all sorts of upheaval. And it was their opportunity, he said, to use the, the Congress to actually um, try to do something about this. Uh, to, and he's not a Marxist, so he's not actually asking for the redistribution of wealth. In the end, he says, you know, what we need to do is educate people in loving each other. I think what he wants to do is prevent revolution, but he does say it's a problem, the, the social injustice, economic injustice that was emerging and that he predicted was going to get worse and worse. And, of course, the, the um, diplomats will just ignore him uh, they're busy investing in this sovereign debt that is being sold as a means of reparation. So they're all trying to get rich. Um, but the, the the interesting thing is, again, you know, the, the extent of politics, uh, you know, the extent of ambitions being heaped on this moment of what they think might change or could be changed uh, as a result of these these gatherings and, the, and these negotiations. Um, so let's... Uh start to wind this up uh, because I went when when I first read this book and when we first started uh, recording this conversation um, it was about two months ago and a lot has changed in two months <laughs> um, and I want to touch on this because as you said there are resonances that are are haunting um, one question I I, want, I I have to ask is 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 the Congress actually consequential? Um, you often hear people say, well, it led to 100 years of peace. Well, well it didn't. In Europe. Well, no, 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 it didn't. I mean, there's Crimea. There's the Fra Franco-Austrian War. There's the Franco-Prussian the Franco uh, the No, the Franco-Austrian War, the Austro-German Wars, the Franco-Prussian War, and some other ones probably like I mean, you put in the Russian-Turkish Wars too, if we want, given based on the on what people thought of as Europe in 1814, those, those mm. count too. Um, 
So there's a lot of war and it involves, and it's more than just between people say, well, it's just between individual states. Well, no, the Crimean war is actually a coalition war. Um, So what did the Congress achieve? Well, I mean, some of the things aren't great, right? So the long term, I, I try to differentiate between you know short term, short term uh, impacts and long term. And in the short term, I think it opened up a space uh, where all sorts of things were possible. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, Robert Owen talking about how do we make the world a fairer place, or how do the bankers mm-hmm. saying let's have Jewish rights. Or abolitionism, which was a big thing too. You know, the anti-slave mm-hmm. movement was was now put in that space. All kinds of um, mm-hmm. what they called philanthropic uh, projects that we might call humanitarian or just you know questions of rights. Plus the fact that mm-hmm. you know you do have this broad engagement and investment in the politics between states. Now, um, Beatrice de Graaf in her book on this period also talks about the long-term institutional changes, and that is the invention of ambassadorial conferences. So the conferencing goes on. It doesn't always prevent things, but the practice of talking, um, plus the practice of diplomacy and its importance of dialogue is, I think, one of the long-term effects. We also know that, you know, it's what's as familiar is the fact that a few powers, a few European powers in this case, uh, decide that they're going to have authority over everybody else. And you sort of see that that's the mirror of the Security Council and that they can make exceptions for themselves in the rules-based order that they've invented. Again, the Security Council, all of its members, right? Um, so that all of those things that they invent, uh, like uh, sovereign debt and um, or like, you know, intervention for humanitarian reasons, they use those things, these powers, uh, in imperial contexts, right? They use it to extract money out of Haiti in exchange for recognizing Haiti's sovereignty. They say, oh, yeah, well, good, you have to pay reparations for slavery, the French say. And here's the model you borrow from the banks, you've got to borrow from the British banks, uh, the French banks, and you've got to pay in French currency. And uh, we're going to make it actually uh, 10 times your GDP. <laughs> sort of extraordinary. And of course, wipes out Haiti for the rest of the century and into the 20th. Um, so they take a model, they've learned what had happened to them, but, of course, in their case it was not, um, you know, uh, this kind of blind robbing of the, of the Bank of France, uh, but they, do, they, they impose this on Haiti. And then the, uh, the French and the British um, or the French intervene in Algeria on the grounds of humanitarianism, but, of course, just bomb Algeria for imperial reasons. So... There, there are these similarities. You have these possibilities and in these institutions created, and then you have all these perversions of their original intent by these imperial powers. You have the idea of a more popular engagement in um, these processes, and you have the, um, the, the, the long-term effect, which is actually to give power to a particular, you know, to men in these particular offices and to not make the popular part of what's going on to limit to the kind of formal processes which could be good in some ways because it's you know the idea would be transparency but actually the movement in the 20th century is to a more public diplomacy where the intentions of states are made public because what happens the more this gets professionalized the practice of diplomacy the more uh, the less that states feel they have an obligation to reveal what negotiations and talks are about so there are all these you know twists and turns but I do think the important lesson then is not that, you know, this is a world one wants to recreate or return to, but actually that the international order 
is constantly being reinvented in moments of great crisis. And the what historians can capture, I think, is the breadth of ambition. But there are these moments that you might say they're not realistic, but actually they are regarded at the time as the most realistic thing you can do. To have Congress where you talk about how do we reshape Europe? You know, what in the in the you know early 19th century, what rights should people get? Should we get rid of slavery? And then, you know, we can, the same thing happens in 1919 and 1945. What shall we do? What kind of world shall we, we create? And the ambition is so large that you can create you create extraordinary new institutions. They will have their problems. But at each moment, you know, if you take that moment and your ambition grows, then, you know, we don't, can't even imagine now what we might be able to invent or create in order to make the world a better place at this moment of crisis. Could you, and today, could you read that last sort of paragraph on, on page 267? Which with, with which you conclude your final chapter, because I I'd like to hear you read it, and then I'd like to hear you sort of um, expound on it, particularly with regard to the war that we're now witnessing, uh, Russia's after Russia's invasion of of Ukraine, because I think this, as you say, there are resonances throughout the book, and resonances of what you just said, and resonances in this paragraph to what we're now seeing. So it's worth returning to an older, more capacious history of peacemaking and the invention of international order, whether understood as revolution or evolution, as restoration or aberration, in order to understand and imagine the possibilities of multilateralism in the future. We might take from that history the lesson that there are no uninterrupted lines connecting the past and present, that the borders between forward and backward-looking political imaginaries are blurred, and that the international order is a matter of perpetual reinvention. History is also a reminder that the possibilities of politics between states, like the question of who gets to do politics and how the past and future are imagined, have mattered for at least 200 years. So for me, you know, as we, as we think about um, the present, and the multiple crises that you know constitute our present, you know, the Ukraine crisis is embedded in fossil fuel dependency and um, you know nuclear arms proliferation and uh, all sorts of um, and the you know the exceptionalism that uh, the major powers have always applied to the so-called rules-based order. You know, there are all these vital problems, you know, the, the the questions of social and economic injustice that, you know, echo back to the early uh, 19th century in Robert Owen. All these, you know, crisis, you know, inter intersecting crises, if you like, are both new, you know, that I don't think you could imagine anything in the past that's quite like now because of the existential uh, threat of climate change in particular, but let alone what's happening in Ukraine for the Ukrainians. But, you know, I think it is important to remember it's not just about a rules-based order introduced in 1945 by the Americans. What we have at our disposal is, you know, the invention of the idea that it is important and possible to have dialogue, that diplomacy is about negotiation and conversation, and that this is a you know, fundamental tool for building political relationships but also that 
that at a moment of crisis, if there is a will amongst, you know, uh, large groups of political leaders and also broader, the broader populations to change things, that it does happen, that it has happened in the early 19th century through the 20th century. Unfortunately, in the past, it's always been at the end of quite long world wars, right? You can think of the, the 25 years of, you know, European war uh, after the French Revolution as a kind of all-consuming, endless sort of war uh, in different parts of Europe, but also extending out because of the extent of, you know, French imperial uh, expansion, but also the, you know, the, the British imperialism at the time and, and other states. But, you know, for all its for all the shortcomings of anything that changes, each time the ambitions and the imagination gets more and more inventive. So, you know, I, I think just to return to that theme that the possibilities of politics between states shouldn't be underestimated, nor should the obligation to think about how at this moment, without waiting for, you know, years and years of war, one doesn't want to be there, um, how we could, you know, really exploit the moment and and uh, consider enacting the same sorts of breadth of breadth of ambition that is part of the history of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries at moments of significant uh, world making opportunity that grows out of crisis. My guest today has been Glenda Sluga. Her most recent book is The Invention of International Order, Remaking Europe After Napoleon. Glenda, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for the conversation. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, Wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.